I, I think just to start with, relocation does not equal healing. So let's just make sure we get that clear. Leaving a place, moving a place does not equal healing. However, sometimes changing location can give you the space to do the work on yourself, which facilitates healing. Hey everyone, welcome back to Flourish in the Foreign, the podcast that elevates, celebrates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and thriving abroad while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American woman currently based in Spain. And I am not only a podcaster, but I am a business strategist that helps Black women and women of color leverage their talents and their expertise into a viable and sustainable business, a business that makes them financially abundant and also professionally fulfilled. If you are interested in building a business to take abroad, then I encourage you to grab my Build a Business Abroad guide, which you can find on the website flourishintheforeign.com slash resources. All right. Welcome to season two of Flourish in the Foreign. I'm super excited to share these episodes with all of you. I think you're going to really enjoy it. This season, we're going to explore mental wellness, burnout, black migration, motherhood, dating abroad, which is a fan favorite, apparently, partnering and breaking up abroad, and so much more. So if you are not subscribed to the podcast, go ahead and get subscribed. Yeah, go ahead and do that. And also share the podcast with anyone that you think would benefit or find this interesting. Now, y'all know I really love this award-winning podcast. I really do. And it is a labor of love, but, you know, labor nonetheless. And so I ask all of you all to please support this here podcast. And there are so many ways for you to support the podcast. You can join the Flourish the Foreign online community where there is past podcast guest interviews, bonus content, and so much more. And you can sign up via the link in the description of this episode. You can become a patron of this podcast at patreon.com slash flourish foreign. You can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign. You can purchase a piece of production equipment, which I'd be so grateful for via our Amazon wishlist, which you can find at flourishintheforeign.com slash support via the link in the description of this episode. And a really important way to support this podcast, if you choose to do so, you can write a review for this podcast. Please do. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while and you have not written a review, please go ahead and do that. A five-star review. Tell people why you love this podcast. And if you listen on Spotify, Spotify actually has the ability to give reviews now. So go ahead and review this podcast on Spotify if that's where you listen. And also please share this podcast, share it in your social media channels, share it in your group texts, share it far and wide. It really does make a difference. All right, on to the next episode. 
So today's guest is Kelly Ann Bonner, and I've had her on the show before. If you remember, she was episode 23, and she talked about how she experienced burnout, how she took her career in social work abroad to both the UK and Italy, and how that was just a really transformative experience. And she also talked about her repatriation journey as well. Well, we have her back on the podcast because Kelly is an incredible burnout expert, mental wellness extraordinaire. And I felt like this is the perfect way to kick off season two because, you know, Flourish in the Foreign is about wellness and mental wellness is very important. Kelly is not only a burnout expert, also a noted speaker and podcaster, and I'm super excited to have her on the show again. Now, full disclosure, since the last time Kelly was featured on the podcast, she has become a client of mine. As y'all know, I'm a business strategist, and so just wanted to disclose that at the very top here, but it doesn't change anything. She's amazing. So in this first episode, we're diving deep into burnout and mental wellness so that you can take care of yourself and equip yourself for a joyous and sustainable life abroad. But I'm going to let Kelly, the expert, tell you all about it. So I am Kelly Bonner. I am 39 years old, and I currently live in Washington, D.C., I'm a licensed clinical social worker, so I'm a therapist. I've been doing this kind of work. I've been a therapist for about two decades. And my main interest in the last maybe seven years or so has been in burnout. So I have an additional certification. I'm a certified clinical trauma specialist. I have some certifications in mindfulness as well. I've just been deep studying this and my background in mental health was always trauma and anxiety. So I come to the work from that lens to kind of figure out how to manage it. And then I also tell people if that doesn't sway you as to why I should be in this space, then my own personal experiences with burnout, hopefully well, that I myself experienced burnout. What I realize is that people often have the symptoms or the feelings of burnout, but they don't have the language. And so part of my mission is to put burnout into language of individuals and into our lexicon so that people know what it is when they're feeling it, particularly Black women. Now, I've talked on this podcast, on Instagram, on YouTube, and various other platforms about how I didn't actually have the language to identify burnout while I was actively experiencing it, let alone the tools to heal from it and also to prevent experiencing it again. So I asked Kelly to break it all down and give us a definition for burnout. So for me, the most basic way to define burnout is it is when the demands exceed your resources. And the reason why I keep it that simple is because there is, you know, the World Health Organization has a specific burnout definition. It's a syndrome. It is associated with work. I very much subscribe to that. But they all have the same kind of running thread, which is that it's when you've hit your limit of having more being asked of you than you can give. So the reason why I keep it that broad is because then you can see the easy connections that can be made in other arenas. And particularly for Black women, there are so many demands of us societally, culturally, 
individually, familially that we have. And yet we also start sometimes with depleted resources. We have cultural depletion. We might have partner or familial depletion. We just have spaces where we come to the table with a little less and we have to fight to get the resources to keep us where we need to be. But the demands are always growing, if not ever constant. And so that's why I'm particularly interested in helping Black women because we have burnout of all kinds. You go to work, you probably have burnout in your job. But there's also this low level of demand versus resources in our lives and who we are as people and as women that I think accelerate and make burnout worse for Black women. So I think as Black women, we often juggle so many different responsibilities, so many different roles. It's a lot. And we sometimes have a tendency to put up with slash endure a number of not so great things until there is a breaking point or something catastrophic happens. And then we're forced to address it head on. So I asked Kelly to describe how burnout may show up in our everyday lives. So yes, burnout showing up in the workplace can be just the exhaustion. It's also a mental and physical exhaustion about your workplace. It is the feeling you get, you know, they call them the Sunday scaries where people are dreading going to work on Monday. It also is having cynicism about your job, about the people you work with, about management. It can manifest in uh, obviously and ultimately in poor work performance. So again, it's that feeling that there's never, you're never going to manage what's on your plate. And because you can't manage what's on your plate, you don't have the resources to meet the demands. You become cynical, you become disconnected, you perform poorer because you have brain fog. That's traditionally what it looks like in the workspace how it looks like with family, some of the symptoms, there's an obvious crossover. But oftentimes, when it's showing up in interpersonal relationships, whether it be love or family, it shows up in the same way again about being under-resourced and over-demanded. We all have complex family lives and complex families. And so for Black women, I think particularly, we are often seen as caretakers the person who's responsible for taking care of our family. If we have older parents, there's caregiver burnout. There's a lot placed upon us in that space. There's a lot of expectation placed upon Black women. I could go on a whole kind of conversation about the expectations and the way we raise Black women and Black girls versus Black boys. And so Black women often have inherent demands placed upon them that are gender role specific in a Black family. And then last but not least, uh, interpersonally, like on the romantic side, people are just tired of feeling like they give a lot in a relationship and getting very little back. We have connections with people and we pursue people that chronically don't meet our needs because we don't maybe speak them or articulate them clear enough. And so as a result, we are constantly being asked more of giving more of in a relationship than we are getting, which goes back to that equation. And I think it ties in really well to what you were started to say as well, Christine, when you talked about how people feel like I'm going to go abroad and I'm going to meet the love of my life abroad. Uh, I'm going to go abroad and I'm never going to have a friendship burnout or an interpersonal connection that is a burnout issue for me. And that's not always true. Sometimes you do get a little bit of healing. Like I will say on the surface, if you go someplace new and you don't have your parents calling you every day, that will 
help burnout. It will make it better. But the other piece of burnout, again, is resources. And you can be under-resourced as a human and as a person. And if you don't work on building up your reserve, building up resilience, building up joy, building up these kinds of things that give you what you need to kind of get through a day and to get through your life, burnout's going to find you anywhere and at any time. And also, we often exist in patterns. And so if we have a pattern of under-resourcing ourselves for not giving us proper self-love and and tender care, burnout's going to find you wherever you go. Can I be vulnerable with you all? It's a safe space. Y'all may not believe me, but I actually had no idea that some of the things I had been experiencing for years was actually anxiety. I had no idea what I was experiencing was called anxiety, like at all. I'm well-educated, got some degrees, I can spell anxiety, and I can definitely use it correctly in a sentence. But I could not identify my own symptoms of anxiety. I could not label what I was experiencing as anxiety. And for a long time, it actually felt weird saying, I had anxiety. I have anxiety. For me, it felt like maybe I was being dramatic, (laughs) you know, or overly emotional about something. And I had a similar experience with the word and the concept of trauma. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I'm probably not the only one and that there may be some of you all who are listening that can relate. So I asked Kelly to break down those terms. And if there were some cultural barriers that perhaps are in play that prevent us from identifying and seeking help with both anxiety and trauma. Yeah, these are all great questions because I do think that people think trauma and anxiety, particularly anxiety, is culture specific and only certain cultures have it. And so for trauma, the unique thing about Black people and Black women is we have intergenerational trauma, which intergenerational trauma means that trauma is contagious and it can be passed along familial and cultural lines. When I talk intergenerational trauma, for Black people, it's a Black American specifically, it's slavery. That is a form of intergenerational trauma that invades our consciousness. So it starts with slaves who had children, who had children, who had children, who had children, and, and we can keep going down the line. And the lessons that we that were learned in slavery times, the, the amount of trauma, which I think everyone can understand with slavery, how traumatic it must have been to be a slave, the, the level of pain that a person has to over, endure, it gets passed on their coping mechanisms and how they deal with it. And so there's cultural trauma, and that shows up in Black America really interesting. Even in our lexicon, for example, we use the word whipping. You're going to get a beating or a whipping. That's intergenerational trauma from slavery, because in slavery, the primary way slaves were disciplined was via whip. And we say it today, and we don't mean it with a whip when we talk about it. Most of the time, it means spanking. But that lexicon is a manifestation of intergenerational trauma, just as an example. So there's intergenerational trauma. And then there's just like the bad things that happen in our life because we're a human being and bad things happen. And it's really clear to distinguish between PTSD, which people are often overdiagnosing themselves with, and what's called traumatic stress. Everybody has trauma. Everybody has traumatic stress. I mean, you have a reaction when bad things happen. 
And that's completely normal. That's part of being a human. So we have traumatic stress. You've been in a car accident. You've lost a loved one. You've witnessed at this point us even watching the suffering of black bodies when we think about, you know, George Floyd and, and the so many others, Breonna Taylor. I mean, we could finish the whole podcast with the names alone. That is its own kind of traumatic stress and its own kind of trauma to us as individuals. So we have intergenerational trauma and then we have our life, like life happens. And so that is its own kind of trauma. The way it shows up primarily when we talk about trauma is it shows up in depersonalization is like a clinical term, but basically it means being out of touch with your body. And I feel like for black people, particularly, that's one that probably happens often. It's a trauma response. We're just disconnected. We may be going through the motions. We may be able to uh, be present in our body, but there's certain parts of us that are checked out that we're not connected to. And the quickest way to know that is like, when's the last time you felt joy? Because joy is a very body experience. Like you have to be in your body to feel joy. You have to, it's an emotion that just like has to claw its way out when you're, when you're feeling joyful. And oftentimes people are not joyful and it's because we don't tap into our body and our reserves, et cetera. So pivoting to anxiety, anxiety is kind of like the byproducts of trauma. And I think for black women, there's a lot of low level anxiety in our lives. Again, burnout is very much an angst. It's an anxiety based syndrome, because when you have too much asked of you and not enough resources, that would make anyone anxious. And what that shows up for black women is like this chronic need to be productive, this chronic need to prove yourself. There's a person I really admire. He does a lot of work in this space. His name is Resma Menikim. And he talks about the concept of override, which I think Black women often do, which is like you push through and you push through. That in itself is both, like I would argue, a trauma response and it's anxiety-based. That we, The way anxiety shows up for us is we just keep going and going and going and we channel it into productivity and achievement and doing all the things and never sitting down. And that's anxiety because at some point you run out of steam to do that. And when that happens, that's when people start realizing, oh, I have anxiety. Like now I'm having panic attacks before I have to do a presentation or have a meeting. Now I'm like generally anxious about my life, it shows up that way. Living abroad as a pathway to wellness. Y'all know, like, that's that's the motto. That's the motto here. Y'all know that is what I deeply believe. But let's ask a burnout and mental wellness expert, former expat and soon-to-be expat again, her take on living abroad has a pathway to wellness. I, I think just to start with, relocation does not equal healing. So let's just make sure we get that clear. Leaving a place, moving a place does not equal healing. However, sometimes changing location can give you the space to do the work on yourself, which facilitates healing. And so for my personal experience, what happened when I lived abroad is it facilitated healing by me just stepping out of myself, which I could have done in theory in the States, but it was a whole lot easier to do so in the UK and then in Italy. By me stepping outside of myself, by me disrupting routines and patterns that I got into when I was living stateside, I was able to do the work of realizing, well, what is different here? What am I feeling that's different? What's coming up for me that I need to address? I would 
go on walks every Sunday in the afternoon. I would take myself on a walk. I would bring my journal and I would just write whatever I was feeling, whatever came up with that. And then I would be forced to look at what I was feeling and read what I was feeling and then begin a pattern of really kind of accessing that feeling, like sitting with it, which can be painful and hard. And then thinking, well, what do I want to do to hold on to some of the good feelings and to let go of some of the others? I did a lot of exercises in letting go when I lived abroad because I feel as Black women, we carry so much and we hold so much within ourselves that it stops us from being able to resource ourselves in the things of joy and abundance and ease, things that you often say yourself, Christine. So for me, it was about what can I let go to make room for? And that's, that's what you can get if you live abroad, if you put the time and attention to do that. And I think the part is the people get a lot of the first part, like, oh, I'm here. It doesn't feel like the States. There's a lot more space and time. You know, we don't maybe work ourselves into the ground over here, but we forget to do the second part, which is really address patterns and behaviors and the way that we have not always been good to ourselves. I frequently language that burnout is a betrayal. It's a betrayal of self. And so we often don't do the work to get to how we betrayed ourselves and what things are we carrying that we need to let go. But we get to the first place, which is like, I'm in a beautiful location. The men are better here. I love, you know, my neighborhood and it's exotic and it's great. And it's all these things, but we don't do the second part, which is really digging deep into ourselves and seeing what parts of ourselves are we bringing everywhere we go that we need to heal. Something that is often discussed, especially in Black expat forums, is guilt. Specifically, I think it's the guilt that people may feel of enjoying life. Isn't that crazy? The guilt of enjoying a life they have cultivated, they have chosen by going abroad, while possibly friends and family are caught up in the status quo back home. So I asked Kelly to define what many people describe as survivor's guilt and give us some tips on dealing with it. Survivor's guilt is what happens when you've healed and you've grown and you moved on, but you may be around people, whether it's family or partners or friends that have not healed. And we all kind of know what it feels like. It's this un- this discomfort we have and we're, we've grown and expanded in ourselves and we're more joyful. And then we're around a group of people who are still talking about the same things that don't hit the same to you and don't mean as much anymore. And that can be really difficult because your first temptation is to kind of shrink the joy and shrink the lesson and shrink the healing so you can fit back in with folks. And that is a form of survivor's guilt that, you know, I think about for myself, just in general, uh, survivor guilt as a black woman is me being able to be a professional black woman who makes a certain amount of money and has a certain amount of degrees and has a freedom that I know my grandmother didn't have. I know my mom made great choices for herself, but she didn't have that either. And I certainly know that to a degree, my great grandmother may or may not have had that. And so there's intergenerational survivor's guilt. Like I'm doing well, I have options and I have decisions that I don't think historically my family ever had. And that causes a level of guilt. But instead, I I would push people to think about ways that they honor that, they honor the legacy. So instead I see like, My grandmother did this. She wasn't perfect, but she did this, this, and this. She taught really great financial skills. 
and she had really great savviness about her. And my mom is brilliant and savvy. And I honor them by taking all of that legacy and all of those lessons and living my life the best way I can. And I see it as an honor versus a guilt. Uh, I try to reshape it that way. And I think for black women, when they see that, it's like you are going to honor the ones you left behind by living well. And that really is the best way to to grow is to to do that in a way that's like, I'm honoring it. And where you can, you help people. And where you cannot, you honor them by showing them that there's another way to be. And particularly with friends, I think that sometimes people and sometimes families are not supportive or they're bitter. And it's really important to say that even if I have to let go of this connection or this, this relationship, I'm going to honor myself and I'm going to show them that it can be different, that I can be different. And that sometimes makes a big difference. You'll have friends come back to you years later and say, you did your thing. Even though I wasn't present for it and couldn't be in your life, I watched it and it really inspired me. When I first moved to Spain and was living in La Rioja, wine country, and working a 12-hour work week, my symptoms of burnout did not subside. It didn't. It, it did not. I did not automatically or magically feel better. And it took me a while to adjust, to really understand what was going on, and to really get the healing that I was looking for. And so I asked Kelly, how can we overcome professional burnout if moving abroad isn't just the quick fix? So... This is, I love this question because it excites me on so many levels. So the first thing I would say for people who are experiencing professional or work-related burnout is simply to just understand that you need to be clear on your values and clear on what is most important and what work means to you. Because oftentimes where we get distracted by the, the small stuff, like the never-ending task list, whatever our job is, and it, it overshadows why we do the work we do. Most times, particularly professional black women is what I would say, but for really all black women, we have a reason that we get a check, that we go to work. Maybe it is just the check, but we have a reason we go to work. And as people have more mobility because they have education or different opportunities, we get to pick what specific thing we want to do for a check. And it's really important to know what your work values are because Often we go into a space and we go into work and we don't ever think about what is the most important thing about who I am that I can bring to this position. Is it that we're a really great communicator? Is it that what drives us is, you know, competence? For me, when I think about my professional goals and what my values are in a professional space, it is to bring authenticity. I want to be myself. I want to bring myself into whatever I do and my whole self into a work. It is passion. I need to be excited about what I'm doing and it's creativity. If I'm not creating in some way, shape or form, then I don't want to be in a job. And so knowing those three things about myself, it really helped me to decide what jobs match. And then when I got clear on that, I started only applying to jobs that would allow me to be myself, that would allow me to be creative, that would allow me to be excited about the work I was doing. And I started avoiding jobs that didn't. And then I also started becoming really clear about when it was time to leave a job. And it's because those three categories weren't being met. And then also when it was just time to improve my life and make some changes. So I might really like my job, but I might find myself not bringing my whole self to work 
well, then I need to start thinking about little ways I can bring myself into my job again, or little ways I can be creative again if things have gotten stale. And so on a professional lens, that is really what I tell people to start with. The second piece to that that I really like talking about and that you brought up, which I really love, is that a lot of times, and and rightfully so, Black women and people in general are exiting the workforce and they're betting on themselves and building their own businesses, which I applaud and love as somebody who's, you know, doing the same. I really applaud that. And I think that's, that's wonderful, but we have to be careful too, that we don't bring dominant culture and white supremacist principles into our work. And the thing is, is that Western culture, the way that Western culture works is really based on a framework of cultural supremacy that doesn't work for anyone. I, I interchange white supremacy and dominant culture just because for me, they're the same. But that dominant culture itself doesn't even support or help the people who are in the dominant culture. And oftentimes what we end up doing is we bring those principles of urgency, you know, the myth of urgency, that it's everywhere. It's all the time. We have to be on, on, on and respond to an email we bring this kind of belief system of hustle culture, which is, I think is a dominant culture principle. We bring the myth of quantity over quality. Well, I have to do these many things to be of value. And if I don't have this many degrees or this many testimonials, then I'm not good enough. And we infuse our personal business and our personal space with these principles. And that leads to burnout. 2020 was a big year, obviously. It's when this podcast was launched. And... I don't know if you guys have heard, the global pandemic kicked off. Yeah. And it almost feels like there is life before 2020 and life after 2020. And all of these changes that the pandemic has created, the buzzworthy phrase, the great resignation. It's also renewed interest in moving abroad. So I asked Kelly her thoughts on the seismic shift in work that we're all experiencing, the deep interest of living abroad, and if there's any correlation or any intersection of these two trends. I do see a correlation. I, I, I love nerding out about the great resignation. So you're like speaking my love language. I love that because the great resignation really is this like generational, existential and economic crisis. And I feel like it intersects with people's reasons for leaving and going abroad. So for example, one of the factors of the great resignation is existential, that people of all colors, but I think particularly marginalized individuals, I think the only reason why white folks get more of the attention is because they have accessibility and the ability to kind of pick up and leave and quit a job. And some people typically who are, who are poor, frankly, can't do that. But existentially, people are like realizing, they're questioning what is the meaning of my life? Like, what am I doing? Work is not meant to be lived like that. And again, I think they're realizing that dominant culture principles are their myths and lies, and they're actually created to keep us all in total injury and totally burned out. And they're realizing, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. And I think for Black women particularly, because we're the most highly educated demographic and we're, we're highly professional people, we're also realizing that there's another way to be and there's other places to do that in. And there's a lot of movement right now. The great resignation as people leave, there's also a lot of space for women and workers in general to have more 
rights and more flexibility to say, hey, I want to work, but I want to work in the London branch. I don't want to stay here. And I think that that's allowing as we all are reevaluating who we are and what's important to us. We're making some really significant life shifts. And a lot of them are in the workspace to free ourselves from kind of the chains and the bondage of the way we work now, which really feels like slavery to just about everybody, but particularly resonates with the Black community. Hey, everyone. I hope you've been enjoying this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you have been enjoying this episode, please consider supporting this here podcast. You can support the podcast by joining the Flourish in the Foreign community at the website flourishintheforeign.com. And also there's a link to join in the description of this here episode. You can also support this podcast by joining the Patreon at patreon.com slash flourishforeign. Buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash flourishborn and cash apping the podcast at dollar sign flourishborn. All right, now let's get back to the episode. At the time of this recording, I have two episodes about dating abroad. And these episodes are extremely popular. I've done panels about dating abroad on the YouTube channel. If you haven't checked those out, you need to go ahead. And I have to say that sometimes I resist talking about dating abroad only because it is discussed in a general and shallow manner with like no nuance and no self-awareness. And uh, I don't really enjoy that. But what I do enjoy if we're talking about dating abroad is going deeper and exploring maybe the question behind the question. So if people ask me, what is it like dating in Spain? What I'm assuming you're really asking is, will I be found desirable in Spain? Or will I find people that I may want to partner with in Spain or people who align with my values in which I can grow and have a life with. I think it's a deeper question and something that we'll be exploring more in this season. We'll also be discussing desirability and fetishization, which I think, and sometimes in some of these general shallow conversations, I think sometimes people conflate these two things that are very different in my opinion. So I asked Kelly to take a stab at unpacking these terms. I do think there's a difference between being desired and fetishized, right? And the exotic. And the difference between, I found, men in the States and men abroad is, and there's so many factors here. First, I am a medium skin toned to on the lighter skin tone black woman. This is important for me to say, just to give context that my experience will be different than somebody else. And I'm going to talk about the ways I saw the differences. I have naturally long hair. I had processed it for many years and it was long. And then I stopped processing it. And when I blow dry, it's still long and looks very European. So my experience with black men in the States is probably different than some. I always was kind of, and I'm using finger quotes here, desirable because I fit a look of a more mixed race person. But what I saw, even the difference between American men and going overseas, and I lived in Europe, so I'm going to also contextualize it. This is my experience in Europe, is that 
blackness is just loved in Europe to me, from my experience. And particularly what was interesting is like I had a friend at the time. She was much darker skinned than than I was. She was much more African featured than I was. Beautiful uh, as well. But she never felt that black men desired her in the United States of America. But overseas, everybody desired her. She was particularly white men. And I think some of that was exoticism, that the fact that it's so different. And they would tell you, like, they have no problem telling you, particularly like the Italian man would be like, your skin is just so beautiful and, you know, chocolate goddess and all this kind of nonsense. They would yell at you when you're, you know, walking down the streets of Florence. And so they would be very upfront about exotic, like the exoticism of your blackness. It didn't necessarily feel always like a fetish, which is then a fetish versus exoticism is like a fetish is like, it's a sexual thing. Like you need to be with a black woman to enjoy sex. I don't know that I always felt that from European men, although I'm sure there's those folks that out there, obviously, but the exoticism definitely, and definitely in Italy, what was a positive, I will say about men in, in England and men in Europe is that they don't have the history and the context that American men have of all races. And that is the historical context of slavery. And so I feel like maybe my walls were less up because these folks don't know about slavery that way. They don't feel a connection to it. So their interest in you is a, is a less, there's less baggage around that. Whereas in the States there's, you know, with white men, you're thinking to yourself, particularly like, "Uh, is this, you know, some slave fantasy you got? It's in the background, even if it's not true. Whereas I felt like with European men, that was not a thing because they don't really have a context for it. And they just are appreciators. Like I felt like for a lot of European men, they're appreciators of beauty of all kinds. And it's not specifically zeroed in, but because you're different from them and they're like, look at your skin and look at your, this, you're beautiful. That it, it's like, oh, it's a, it's like, oh, this is a great thing. This is a positive. And I feel like so often black women are taught to be ashamed of their skin or not so much ashamed, but the narrative in their consciousness is that black is not beautiful. Black is sexy. And I think that's really important to make the distinction because in the context of slavery, black women were used as sex objects. They were sexually violated. Oftentimes it's not beauty, it's sexiness. And I think right now our culture is obsessed with black women being sexy, but they're not really obsessed with black women being beautiful. And I felt in Europe, that I felt less of that. I felt more of that in the States about being quote unquote sexy and less about being beautiful. And in Europe, I felt more like, oh, I'm beautiful. And mostly because they would tell you. And I, you know, and less about being sexy, if that makes any sense. Softness. It's becoming one of my favorite topics to talk about. When I say soft, what comes to mind? If I describe myself as soft, What assumptions do you have of me now? Well, Kelly and I have actually discussed this before on an IG Live on the Flourish in the Foreign Instagram. So if you have not watched that, I'm going to link it in the description of this episode, and you should definitely check it out. So I asked Kelly to discuss softness and how experiencing softness abroad really changed her and how she believes it may change Black women who live abroad. I, I think as Black women, we're, our default is, again, to push, push, push. And there's a harshness to pushing. 
And you have said this, we both are obsessed with the language of softness. When we have language that's like crushing goals and hustle and all this stuff that particularly we ascribe to women and to black women, it creates this, this tough armor. And, and again, culturally, we understand why black women would need to put armor on to deal with slavery. For example, when we're talking about black women expacted by colonialism, right? West Indian women, African women, and, and the historical need to prep yourself for battle and to be ready and to not show your weaknesses. But again, the word I'm using is battle. And it's such a painful way to go about life if you're always waiting for the next battle. And I think that we're oriented that way. I know I can speak for myself. I was. And when we're in a space where we're always kind of like ready for battle, vigilant, keeping our eye out for the next move of somebody who we see as an adversary versus a partner, it has an impact. It's, it leads us to, you know, leave our bodies and not be present in them, not access our emotions because we put them away. That causes anxiety. That actually is a recipe for more trauma there's there's science that tells us that when people are in a relaxed, joyful body, even when bad things happen, they're less impacted by it. Obviously, there's still sadness and there's still traumatic stress, but they're less likely to develop a mental health syndrome or PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. They're less likely to get that versus people who are tense, people who are adversarial. They're kind of squared off. They're angry they're more likely to be significantly traumatized by the same event that a person that's full of joy and, and softness or, you know, relaxed in, in their body is going to face. So we have the science that tells us it's not good. I would say like on a personal level for myself, beyond the science and just to like who Kelly is, I would say that for me, being hard was like living half of a life. And there were parts of myself I was constantly hiding. My my natural instinct is I'm kind of like, you know, I think I'm a black girl in a Jane Austen novel. Like I really, that is who I am. <laughs> I really do see myself as like, ah, I, I want to be on a tree in a hill writing a poem and having dreams. And I, I always felt a little bit as I got older of shame about that. And it's more societal, not familial. My family was fine with me. They knew I was a daydreamer, but I was a daydreamer and I love nature and I love poems and I love writing. And I really loved softness and soft characters and soft stories. Unfortunately, there's not a lot in our culture that is directed toward black women. Like we're not depicted as soft. So I was gravitating to, you know, Jane Austen and happy endings, but that is really what I was. And yet life, I let, I allowed it for a long time period and to be transparent, I'm still working through it. I allowed it to make me hard and I allowed it to make me less vulnerable and always ready to kind of like square up. I will smile on your face and I'll be happy, but I wasn't soft. I was harsh. I was like no nonsense. And I felt like I was living half a life and I had half friendships and I had not so great relationships. And I wasn't always honest with my family about my feelings and when I allowed softness to start to show up, when I started accessing my imagination and allowing myself to daydream and taking long walks and writing about my feelings and feeling those feelings, and when I was transparent enough to say, okay, I could break this friendship, but there's something here to salvage. Why don't I use my words and let's talk about it? Things got better for me. And 
getting soft and being vulnerable is, I feel like for black women, a lifelong process. I don't, I mean, there's probably some black women who are doing it amazing. I'll say for myself, it's a lifelong process. I go in and out of it and I go in and out of it, particularly now that I'm back in the States where I was a little bit gentler, I think overseas, I go in and out of it based upon my own trauma response. Again, we talked about like your own pain. And so when it hit my pain, my first, like a painful memory or past learning, my first reaction is to draw the sword and say, I'm cutting you off of my life. I'm cutting you out of my life. And I have to work through that. But when I do work through it, I feel like I have a richer life for it. So I guess the next question has to be explicitly, can living abroad heal burnout? I think living abroad does both. (laughs) It can help and hinder. Again, we talk about the concept of space. And oftentimes what is painful about our families is that they are there's maybe an absence of that. There's a lot of demands placed upon us. There's a lot of asks. There's a lot of pressure to conform to what your family wants you to be. Our parents have dreams for us and then we may not live up to them or we may not like the dreams that they have for us. And it can be difficult to say that to them, especially when they're next door to you or around the corner. It's a little easier to say that when you are away from home and they can't get on a plane or they can't come over in the next day. And I think part of that too, it goes back to what I said earlier about having the space to think about yourself and to be really clear about resourcing yourself with joy and in ease and in healing and working on yourself. So you can be really clear Oftentimes what happens is we wait till we have conflict to set boundaries or to be clear about what's going on. And it just creates more pain. It doesn't facilitate healing. But there is a way to set boundaries, which I think ultimately causes burnout, particularly with families, when you set boundaries in a loving way and you can facilitate healing that way. And sometimes you need the space to think about it. When it comes to friendships, I would say, what is difficult probably about both friendships and family is oftentimes when people move abroad, there's a strain on communication because if you live in Asia and your family member lives in New York, there's like sometimes a 12 to 13 hour time difference. It's really hard to communicate as well. And that can put strains, but it's also an opportunity to really evaluate and think about what are the qualities of your friendships Because at the end of the day, the people who care about you and and want great things for you, they're going to make it work. You know, I started a book club with some of my friends that I kept in touch with. But I also, in full transparency, I had a difficult time overseas that I, friends that I thought would be there for me were not. I lost communication with people. I had to rebuild my friendships. And it was a good thing for me as a person, even though it was really painful at the time. Was it was an opportunity for me to reestablish my own boundaries with my friends. And I was allowing myself to be overly there for people. And it wasn't in a sense of like, I, you could call me any time of the day. All your drama could come to me. I'm always here. It was very one-sided. And when I was able to take a bird's eye view kind of from that, I was realizing that. And that was a painful but powerful revelation for me to reestablish boundaries in my friendships And it's all the better for it. The people who stuck around were still great friends, were only just better friends for it. And it was a great way to also establish boundaries with my family. And not even so much in the sense that I needed to reshape my family because I didn't. But it was a really powerful time for me to think about 
what, you know, intergenerational trauma has impacted my family and, and what we have been through together and how we've beautifully overcome in some ways and really kind of honor that, but then also honor who I am as Kelly and how that may not be exactly all the things that my family wanted me to be, but still they love me for it. And I'm more sure of who I am so I can engage with them in a way that we have healthier relationships. I asked Kelly to share with us some tips and some resources that we can utilize as we all try to support and nurture our mental wellness abroad. Yes. So there's a couple of ways to do this. There is for abroad is a little trickier and it really depends on like things like insurance and all the rest. But there are several online options just in general. Like, for example, betterhelp.com has a plethora of, of services. You can put in categories to weed through therapists, like what you want, making sure they're a person of color centered or they are, in fact, a person of color. If you're going locally, you can use Psychology Today, which is more of an American based kind of repository of different mental health therapists. If you want trauma treatment, you can go to, you can type in the letters EMDR and it'll send you to their national site and international site where you can find a therapist who specializes in EMDR, which is this type of non kind of non talk therapy based treatment of trauma. It's very impactful, has a lot of science behind it. There's those resources. Where it gets tricky is when you live abroad and you have, let's say you're working for an American company abroad, depending on your type of insurance, it may be a little more complicated to access local resources if it's an English speaking country or there's an English speaking therapist, but it's still possible. I had therapists while I was in the UK. I had a nutritionist and a holistic kind of person who did all the things. And we talked about my feelings and my food, my relationship with food. And I found her and I just paid her out of pocket. And that's just a Google search of like, who's a therapist available to get around insurance. What I would advocate for people who are overseas, but want an American therapist, but don't want to deal with like jurisdiction of licenses. For example, I cannot just practice in the UK because my license is just for the United States, then get a coach and get a coach that specializes in with black women. It coaches, specializes in you know, having career goals to heal trauma. If you do coaching, like for example, I do coaching as well as therapy. Coaching has no restrictions. You can coach somebody in Egypt. You can coach somebody in Florida. There's no restrictions on that. So those are just a few uh, resources. There's also like podcasts and apps. There's an app called Liberate. There's an app called Shine. There's Therapy for Brown Girls. I, I definitely advocate for that website which has all a list of directory of black therapists, specifically working with black women. Those are just a few off the top of my head. Those are some great resources. And I'd like to add two more, which are Kelly's podcasts. Yes, she has two podcasts. So I asked her to tell us more about Black Girl Burnout and Let's Burn Bright, respectively. Black Girl Burnout is a partnership with the company called Amplify Voices, which basically looks to amplify the voices of professional and just everyday people of color and center them in a way that we know traditionally and historically, particularly in podcasting and just about anywhere else, Black voices are not heard. And so Black Girl Burnout is a podcast dedicated to all of us as Black women. It's where I, three times a week, sometimes more, 
I give tips to how to cope through your day. And it's meant to be really actionable and small little steps. And I really draw upon my own experiences about like my own bl- burnout as a black woman and just talking about imposter syndrome and, and opting out of struggle and things like that. And that can be found on all the major platforms. It's on Apple Podcasts. It's on Spotify. It's on Stitcher. You name it. Google Podcasts. It's available there. So the Let's Burn Bright podcast is basically niche down to professional millennial women. It is a podcast that encourages women to kind of opt out of the mainstay of work and how work is normally presented to us. And it gives really thoughtful stories and tips on how to deal with things like in the next season, we're going to deal with the great resignation. We're going to deal with conflict in the workplace, how to negotiate for yourself in workspaces and places and how to advance. What does leadership look like for women in the workplace when we're often vilified or marginalized out of that? And so that podcast is, is specifically for professional women that consider themselves millennials. And it is stories of inspiration on how to kind of bet on yourself and build the life you want. And also it is more practical, particularly a new season starts. It's going to be all about really specific concrete skills to get you through your work life. How can you deal with the boss that's a bully? How do you develop the executive skills that you need to to move forward? How do you balance work and life or have some kind of alignment of your work and life? All of those things are explored on that podcast. And that's also on all the major platforms. I asked Kelly to share some parting words of advice, of encouragement with all of you. If you're listening, keep listening. This is a sign that you want to know and you want to grow and you want to explore what life can look like. And and really this podcast to me, although I did flourish in the foreign and I do want to live abroad, I ultimately feel like this podcast is about women finding healing and believing in themselves, radically and doggedly pursuing joy. And that's something that if that's you, and I think it is, keep doing things like this. Keep listening to podcasts like this. Keep pushing yourself to find joy in everyday spaces and little things because that is really the path to wellness. And that can be done wherever you are, but it is the the journey to kind of being a fuller and more whole version of yourself. And I do take on a small cadre of women who are looking for just straight up mentorship. And I do provide that for them. I will provide a kind of resource how to do that as a woman who's been a director and also is working for herself and has left, you know, corporate and has is moved on from that. How to survive, <laughs> frankly, being sometimes the only face in the room of color or the only woman in the room, how to achieve kind of work-life alignment and how to kind of build the career you want. So I do that occasionally. If not, if you contact me, which you always can, I will always point you in the direction of somebody else who can also help on that level. If you want to keep up with Kelly, you can via social media. So you can find me on my social media at Kelly A. Bonner, and it's Kelly with an E-Y. I have a special spelling of Kelly, and that's both for Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so much, Kelly, for being an amazing guest. I appreciate you so, so much. If you want to learn more about Kelly, you can by going to her show notes page at flourishintheforeign.com slash episodes slash Kelly 2. 
I really enjoyed recording and editing this episode because I really feel that bringing wellness into the conversation of moving abroad and living abroad is so essential, especially from the standpoint of mental wellness and how you can start preparing yourself and and getting the support that you need before you go abroad, but also while you're abroad. I just think that it's so important and I'm so glad to have had Kelly's amazing insight, not only an expert, but also as someone who has lived this life, who's lived abroad, repatriated, and really understands some of the particularities of that experience. If you want to hear more episodes about mental wellness or these kind of subject-specific types of episodes, let me know. Because if you want to hear it, I will create more. Let me know in my DMs. Let me know in the comments. Email me. Let me know. And if you are looking to build a business to go abroad, if you have a business that you'd like to scale, if you just want to learn more about what the heck are you talking about building a business abroad, hey, I'd love to tell you more about it. You can definitely go to the Flourish No Foreign website and download the resource Build a Business Abroad. You can also check out the plethora of business resources and articles that I have provided via the link in the description of this episode. If you are interested in building your business, if you are ready to make that commitment to take your business from idea to actual business or from maybe side hustle or hobby to profitable business, then you'll want to join my Build a Business Abroad group coaching program, which opens its doors every quarter, right? So at the top of the quarter, it opens. If you're interested in it, you'll definitely want to join the wait list and get more information so that you can be notified when I do workshops and when the doors open. Remember, it's not about moving abroad. It's definitely not about just being abroad. It's about thriving abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. Wellness in a really broad concept, like a very holistic way, is part of why many people have gone abroad and have thrived Right? Because at some level, they've made this assertion in their head and they truly do believe that things will be better wherever they're going. Mm-hmm.